there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is ESPN's Julie Foudy. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's games. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Julie Foudy in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, uh, it's it's still a little bit of a weird time in the soccer calendar, you know, because Europe is in preseason for the most part. Uh, several big women's tournaments happening right now, so I've been watching those. Lots of MLS, a little bit of NWSL. Um and a fair amount to talk about as a result, but let's talk about U.S. Women's National Team Canada to start. That's Monday night in the CONCACAF Women's Final. What's at stake here? CONCACAF actually sort of thought about this ahead of time this time, and you can get a spot in the Olympic Games in 2024. It goes to the winner of this game. The loser will have a playoff against the third place CONCACAF team in September for the second and final CONCACAF spot in the 24 Olympics. So there's something riding on this game and there's also revenge on the minds of the US after being eliminated uh, or from gold medal contention at least by the Canadians in the Olympics last year as Canada went on to win the gold medal, the US got bronze. What are you thinking heading into this game? Well, I, I do think it's it's really important, but I, I am kind of interested in how the U.S. summons a performance here because the U.S. very rarely gets sort of pressed into this position where it's a single elimination against a team that's on their level and there is something very important on the line. It really only happens in major tournament finals or semifinals, really. And so this is a situation in which the U.S. plays a Canada team that has beaten them recently. They have not been perfect they were not perfect again against Costa Rica, though they get the job done to get to this final. I saw, I mean, their record in CONCACAF tournaments is absurd in terms of goals for and goals again. So they've gotten the job done to this point, but there's some doubt and there's a lot of interest in what kind of performance the U.S. will come up with here because they've clearly been building to something, but we thought they were building in the Olympics and it never built to anything. And so if Vlako Andonovsky loses a second game in a major tournament to Canada... I think that this really turns the heat up on him. It turns the heat up on the players. And I'm really interested in how this game of stakes in which the U.S. You talk to some people, it's like, oh, I think Canada's going to win. Like, it's it's so rare that the U.S. goes into any game in which you think the opponent might win, never mind will win. And so that level of jeopardy is a really intriguing proposition for me. Yeah, it is really interesting. I think a couple things are important to note here. One, yes, Canada beat the U.S. in the Olympics last year, but overall in the history of this rivalry, there isn't much of a rivalry. The U.S. has mm -hmm. been far and away the better team against Canada over the years. There have been some pretty big games between these two teams in the Olympics last year, in the Olympics in 2012, that classic 4-3 win by the U.S. But for the most part, the U.S. has dominated this rivalry. And it is a little frustrating, I think, if you watch the U.S. a lot. There's just not much competition in CONCACAF. And you're sort of hoping that Mexico would be better in this tournament than they were. They weren't. And there, aside from the U.S. and Canada, there's just not much there yet in CONCACAF as this tournament has shown. And you're watching the Euros right now, and you've got a half dozen teams that could win that thing. And so you sort of are maybe a little envious looking at that. But uh, if you're the U.S., you can't choose your opponents. You can't on your own make CONCACAF better. And so you try to get as much as possible out of this game against Canada. I did ask Vlad Kranzanovsky in the press conference today, Sunday, um, you know, what he thought of this Canada team from what he's seen. He's like, look, this is similar to what we've seen from Canada in the past. A lot of the same players, a lot of the same threats. The uh, They played well the other night. So we're not going to surprise each other with what we bring on the field on Monday. He did point out, though, that there are very few U.S. players in this team 
who were part of the loss to Canada last year. He was saying like four or five, I'll, I'll go through and count, I guess, just to double check, but not that many. And so he hasn't brought it up a lot, what happened last year with this current team. And, and obviously this US team is well aware of what happened last year, so I don't think he needs to necessarily do that. But I think when you say hot seat for Vlatko, if the US were to lose to Canada is very accurate. Um, I don't think he would lose his job. You know, I, I've had a few people out there, fans say, oh, you know, maybe his job's in danger if, uh, if the U.S. loses to Canada. I don't see that, but I would like to see the U.S. under Andonovsky have a great performance against a good team. Yeah, I think, we have we seen it yet? I, I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm, not, I'm not really sure we have. And so it's, it's been a long time for him in charge of this national team. And... I think he is obviously a very charismatic guy, and he seems like uh, he's well-liked within U.S. women's soccer ranks and was well-liked within the NWSL, which is not a guarantee for men's managers in the NWSL. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I, I, I do think that I, he's obviously not someone that anyone will have any, an, uh, any animosity towards, but we just have not seen the U.S. hit their level in these big games. Occasionally in She Believes, um, but that's not major competitive tournament like the Olympics or Olympic qualifying or the, the the Women's World Cup or Women's World Cup qualifying. It's just not the same. And so I do think it's really important that the U.S. comes out, wins the game, and looks good doing so. I think even if they win and they were struggling, if the whole thing is that this is a precursor towards next year's Women's World Cup, this is really the last chance that we're going to see the U.S. in this sort of environment where it feels like a test that will rival what that will be in 2023. So in, in my view, this is a massive game for the United States. Moving over to Euro 2022, the quarterfinals are almost set. We've got England against Spain, which is going to be terrific. Germany against Austria, which edged out Norway to get to the quarters. France against the Netherlands, which will be fun. And Sweden against team to be named soon on Monday. Um, Norway and Denmark are out. I love the 16-team Euros. I love it when just two teams from each group get out because it really does add something and increases the stakes to the group stage. So when I'm watching uh, Denmark against Spain this weekend, which was a very tense game, I like that. I like that, uh, that Spain got a late goal uh, you know, they were going to advance anyway with a scoreless tie, but like there was a lot of tension in this game and there was some good soccer being played. Uh, Norway goes out uh, losing to Austria, which, um, you know, credit to Austria. They played a, a good group stage, but Norway was some of the best players in the world in the attacking end. Caroline Graham Hansen, Ada Hegerberg, um, the 8 0 loss to England. And that coach, the Norway coach, has to go, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, if you fail to score against England and Austria, your four goals at the tournament are against a group of largely semi-professionals in Northern Ireland. Yeah, he's he's got to go. <laughs> it's time. It's it's time for that experiment. And I, I'm kind of surprised because you uh, know, I mean, Hagerberg came into the camp fairly late in the day. It was something of a surprise that she came back. It seems like the Norwegian FA doesn't really have it together when it comes to the women's side uh, because it is a talented team. It's a good group, and it nearly drove out of Hagerberg away, and it has them out at the group stage fairly embarrassingly in these Euros. It feels like they need to have a come-to-Jesus moment inside of that Norwegian FA on the women's side. On the men's side, too, by the way, they have Erling Holland and Martin Odegaard and can't qualify for the Euros, can't qualify for the World Cup. What is going on with the Norway FA, Chris? There needs to be an inquiry. What's going on in Norway? I think that's the first time anyone's ever asked that question. I'm kind of serious, though, about, like, like, their men's team can't qualify for anything, which is, you know, if you've got one of the world's great strikers, I, it's very strange to me. Um... But I look at the way things have gone so far at the Euros, and you know, several teams can win this thing. I think England's pretty far and away the favorite right now, though Germany's been good. Yeah, it's just like it's what I love about World Cups is that there is information, but not enough. And so, for instance, in this group stage, I thought they were pretty unimpressive against Austria, but then you realize that Austria are perhaps better than we thought. They smash Norway, but Norway might be worse than we thought. 
And then they beat Northern Ireland, which is really a game that doesn't have a ton of information because Northern Ireland is, again, largely a group of semi-professional players, nothing against them, and they actually gave a fairly decent account of themselves. Uh, but you just don't know at the end of that what England is as a team. And we have previous. We know that they have good players. You know that A lot of their players play in the WSL and abroad as well. Uh, we know that you know, Serena Wiegmann's done a good job taking over for, for Phil Neville and, and keep on and, and has kept going what was a decent run of success. But we just don't know when they come up against Spain how they figure against that level of competition. We know that the Germans are very good. We know that the Dutch eventually uh, got it together in this group stage. They'll be a tough team to beat. And like you said, there's going to be a half dozen teams that have a chance to win these Euros. And it really just comes down to how these teams match up on the day, but it's hard to really take on any of the information from the group stage and think, well, that's enough for me to think X team is the favorite. No, it's a good point. You know, you think you feel like Spain is going to be in trouble against England simply because Spain doesn't have Alexia. They don't have Jenny Hermoso. It, it's going to be difficult. And we've seen how Spain has played in this tournament as a result. Um, you know, I look at France and talent wise, I would feel very good about France, even though Katoto did her ACL. How many ACL injuries have we seen in the women's game? Um, and then there's the France coach who may be a worse coach than the Norway coach. Um, so curious to see what happens, but I like the fact that these quarterfinals in the years are gonna have good matchups. I think it's gonna be com con continuing compelling soccer. Uh, MLS, we're recording Can I, can I very quickly, quickly, before you transition, can I yeah. make an appeal to both the media and the biotech community of Silicon Valley, there, I really do think there needs to be a lot more research and effort put into solving the ACL problem in, in women's soccer and in women's sports in general. I've, I've heard that, you know, there's a physiological reason in, in particular to do with the hips. I don't know all the details, so I'm not going to talk as if I know the answer, but yeah. there are many more ACL injuries in the women's game than there are in the men's game, and I don't know what we can do to improve that. I do know that, for example, a player like Steph Curry in basketball had a really bad ankle situation, and he almost had to relearn how to run physically, and so I would like for some tech startup somewhere to try and figure out this problem, or some enterprising sports scientists, or the Harvard MIT Sloan Business Conference, or some entity that puts a ton of resources into solving this problem. I don't know who that entity is going to be. I, I, I imagine there are probably some people doing that work, but whatever that whatever work is being done there, there should be a redoubling of efforts because it really it, it's a massive problem. It really is. I can remember reading a story in Sports Illustrated magazine many years ago about the proliferation of ACLs in women's sports. And so there has been work done on this topic, mm -hmm. including work to get a sense of how much more serious the problem is in the women's in women's sports than in men's sports. But um, it is a problem. It continues to be one. And when you see Barcelona putting out, oh, Alexia is out for 10 to 12 months. Well, 12 months is like the World Cup. 12 months is missing the entire club season. And Katoto, same thing. She I, just a terrific player. And it almost seems disproportionately affecting star players uh, in, in women's soccer. So it is it is tough for the players, obviously, and the teams, but also for the fans, too. And, and you hope that maybe some advances get made on this stuff. Um, MLS, we're recording at 4.30 p.m. on Sunday. So actually, uh, some of the marquee games are ahead of us, including uh, LAFC potential debut for Gareth Bale and Giorgio Chiellini against Nashville, uh, a couple other games too. But uh, I did want to bring up a couple of things. One, Philadelphia Union comes from behind to beat New England 2-1 to one on Saturday. And... Philadelphia's only lost two games all season, and they've had a lot of ties. I know that's been frustrating for them, but they've also had their share of wins. And I feel like every single year, Jim Curtin does good stuff with this team. And last night, we saw a lot of the young guys that we'd seen around that USU 20 group. Agreed. And I think Jim Curtin is now almost becoming overqualified to make a move to Germany or Austria, <laughs> one of these countries that mirror the style of play that the union organization now operate out of. I think you look at that 4-2-2 system, although they changed it slightly uh, last night in the game against New England, but they did 
or they, they do implement this system that's very common in Germany, and Jim Curtin knows how to coach it. And they have a system now in which they know the group of 15 players that they want to play. They basically start every game. There's like one change usually in a Philadelphia Union team. It's usually at right back. Uh, and otherwise, you know that it's going to be Andre Blake in goal and Gleznes and Elliott in front of him and Martinez and Gazdag and Flock and Bedoya in front of them and then Carranza up top. And you and Kai Wagner, I don't even mention, is on 10 assists from left back. Like, that team just knows how to play, know how to play with each other. They have been building this for several years, and it's still, like, they de they deserve an enormous amount of credit, even though it does kind of become part of the furniture because they've been at it for so long. Philadelphia, before this, was not an organization that knew any kind of consistency. This is not a team that spends money on designated players. They invested their money and credit to them in their academy. It's going to help the U.S., national team program immeasurably. I think the, the, the U.S. should give them some royalties if they ever win something <laughs> big because what they've done in building an organization, you have to give them credit because for a while there, I remember I called, one of the first games I called at Univision, they played D.C. United. I think it was in 2016. And they both, the, the both of them had gotten off to terrible starts in that season. And I remember listening to podcasts from union fans and union pundits and just the conversation around Jim Curtin is that he had no idea what he was doing. He was out of his depth. He was a terrible coach. Why did they keep him? And you hear like, it was like destitute around the union organization. It was like, what is the point of this team? And it's remarkable that back then they were laying down the foundations, presumably for what they have become, or Ernie Stewart and subsequently Ernst Tanner have come in and laid down what that vision is, and they execute it flawlessly. Ernst Tanner with his wallet a bit lighter <laughs> after <laughs> his criticism yeah. of LAFC. I thought that was amusing. I guess one other question I have is, who's going to get to Red Bull Salzburg first, Jim Curtin or Paxton Aronson? What if they get there at the same time? No, I, I think, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure, like Salzburg, I think, last time I saw their coach is like my age. So <laughs> I think uh, he, he either is on a meteoric rise or he'll be there for a second. But yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, the brothers Aronson will have both made their way through the Red Bull organization. I imagine Paxton will be next. But I mean, it's wild to see him and, and Jack McGlynn, who started in that game on the field. And actually, interestingly, they have not, I don't believe, I could be wrong, brought in any new players in this transfer window, but they did sell a couple in Stuart Finlay, who was kind of their third choice center back to basically clear the room for eventually Brandon Craig will take over that position. And they also moved Sergio Santos out. He was part of their depth core at striker in Philly. And it seemed as though it was, we need to get rid of these players to clear the way for the under-20s coming back from the World Cup to come through and play more. And sure enough, two of them uh, started in the game against New England in that comeback win. So it was interesting that like Philly almost had to get out of their own way in order to give those guys minutes. I'm excited to see those U-20 guys get more opportunities with the club team because like they looked good for the U.S. and, and you just feel very exciting about, excited about that group. Uh, one other MLS thing I wanted to ask you about was Seattle because I just sort of assumed that once Seattle was totally focused on MLS after winning CONCACAF Champions League, this would be a pretty straightforward rise to the top of the league. That's not happening. They lost to Chicago uh, after uh, a couple other losses. Um, and it, it just doesn't seem to be happening right now for Seattle. And they have a few injuries, but not that many. And so I'm, I'm kind of wondering what's happening there. Well, I, I would probably, I would posit a couple things. One, normally for Seattle, they go on this run towards the middle of the year. And it comes when the cavalry arrives. There is usually a big summer signing that helps lift them through the rest of the season. And because they dedicated all of their resources into their run in CONCACAF Champions League, there is no cavalry arriving. And I think that largely would probably happen right now in central midfield because Joao Paulo is out. Obed Vargas is out. He's 16 years old. The start of the season became a pivotal part of the team. And now they're base of midfield is Albert Rusnak, who's played in this league mostly as a number 10, who's already kind of a makeshift eight, and Daniel Leva, who, you know, has, has been a young player coming through, but not all young players are ready to take on the mantle of this team. And so 
you have the the motivation factor, and you have the lack of reinforcements arriving that I think uh, was probably going to lead to a turn at some point, albeit this has been somewhat surprising when it, it really has a spotlight shown upon it when it's against the Chicago Fire, who at times have been a really poor team in MLS this season. One other big MLS story this week, Atlanta's Darren Eels leaving the club to join Newcastle United and the big Saudi Arabia money push there. Um, we're starting to see this with uh, a couple guys now, MLS executives who've gone to the Premier League, and Eels is the highest profile case yet. Uh, we saw Kevin Thelwell uh, go to Everton uh, from the Red Bulls. Uh, you know, Dane Murphy has had a few stops, but he's with Nottingham Forest, which got promotion to the Premier League. Uh, Darren Eels viewed as one of the top execs in MLS, got things started in such a big way with Atlanta United on and off the field. Uh, not as great the last couple of years, obviously, but uh, were you surprised by this? Do you think we're going to see more MLS execs maybe go to the Premier League? Certainly. I think when you look at the way that American sports businesses are run, I still think it's it's the top standard. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I, I do think that they really know how to run a business in this country. It's fairly obvious. Uh, But I I think there are a lot of things that can be taken abroad, and you have executives that come over from other places, come into this environment, learn, and can export whatever expertise they bring in. But I also think that in Darren Neal's case, this is a fairly extraordinary person. I think he's done a really good job and probably one of the best jobs in the history of the league in building out a soccer business in this country. I looked at. I was looking at average attendances today. Atlanta averaged forty eight thousand a game, <laughs> and I don't. Again, similar to Philly Union being good, this is part of the furniture now. But it's incredible, and yeah. I you can't singularly credit anyone because you know it, there, there's so many things that go into it. They caught lightning in a bottle. They had this incredible run at a temporary stadium. Normally, temporary stadiums are crap, but theirs was awesome, and. They opened this palace that's an amazing place to go watch a game. It's in a dome, and so it's climate-controlled, and it's and they won. They were exciting. They were fun. Maybe if they had a terrible on-field product, this wouldn't have happened, but all these things came together, and Darren Eels deserves a lot of credit. And so if I were an executive around the world looking for someone to run my team, I can think of a lot worse people. And so... I'm not surprised that a a club like Newcastle who are looking to embark on a new era have turned to him. And I'm really interested now in what the vision looks like in Atlanta because, yeah, they have a lot of stuff established, but at times on the field in particular, it looks to be on a little bit of shaky ground. I'm not saying that fans are going to stop showing up. They're still incredibly passionate about this team, but it's not quite the same as the first two years Atlanta United. And so the person who's next in charge of vision has a big job on, in my opinion. And I wonder... What Atlanta's going to do? Are they going to try and poach somebody? Is Garth Lagerway someone they might go after? Is it something where they might promote from within? Is it something where they might do something else? I, it's It could be really an interesting move here because it, this is viewed as one of the top jobs of its kind in MLS based on what Darren Eels did to make it such. So... Um, I mean, and we know that Arthur Blank is not shy about opening up the checkbook and getting the very best people. Oh, yeah. But that's, it's, it's interesting because Atlanta also needs to have some good things happen. So, I mean, so their signings haven't been as successful as they were early on. Tata Martino, obviously, was a tremendous hire. Uh, haven't been as successful since then. But so much potential, I think, there to get back to where they were. And we'll see if they're able to do that. Uh, let's finish up with some transfers here. Uh, we've reached here we go stage with a few more. Uh, Robert Lewandowski is off to Barcelona and coming to the United States, by the way, for preseason here. That deal finally got done with Bayern Munich. Uh, Matthijs De Ligt from Juventus to Bayern Munich uh, is in here we go mode. Lissandra Martinez from Ajax to Manchester United. Anything about these three that stand out to you? Well, I I do think that Barcelona are interesting to me because uh, so much conversation about their finances, and that certainly will happen over the course of the next few years because they're really interesting case in what's happening in the world of economics and football. But from a purely football standpoint, 
What have the moves that they have gone on about making in this offseason, where do you think it moves them from? Because I do think they were the second best team in La Liga for the second half of the season. And if you look at form, perhaps even the best of the Real Madrid in winning the Champions League wins that conversation a million times over. But have they taken a leap from a team who in the Champions League last year looked like they were so far out of their depth that the Europa League in some ways kind of suited them because it was their level. They were a Europa League team last year. And so have they, between the manager change, between the signings of Rafinha and Lewandowski, done enough to elevate from a team that was can qualify for the Champions League in Spain to competing in the Champions League? Are they competing for a title next year with Real Madrid? How far have they progressed by virtue of the additions that they've made? And if the answer is not up to that level, then why have they mortgaged so much of, what they, of, of their future in order to get to this level? I think that's the great question right now about what Barcelona is doing is given what they are sacrificing of the future and all the worrisome stuff that comes with that if you have any cares about being responsible <laughs> with your money, um, is what they're getting worth it? And, and, you know, thankfully we'll have a season to find out. But when you look at the players they're getting, you know, Lewandowski is still very much, I think, uh, one of the top strikers in the world. So... Um, I think that could be a really good thing for them. Uh, I think they're going to get more out of, obviously, Ansu Fati was injured for much of last season. So I think as long as he stays healthy, he can bring a lot to the table. And, and I just hope this doesn't hurt the young guys at Barcelona from doing what they could have done had they not brought in so many other folks. Um, you know, it's, it was a, a weird season for Xavi because you're right. He sort of restored confidence in the fan base over the first few months, but then going out against Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League really brought them down again. And so it's, Barcelona is a strange club, but like the decisions they've made this summer suggest that they want to be in a position to like challenge to win Champions League next year, challenge to win La Liga. And, and I think maybe they can challenge to win La Liga. I don't know about Champions League. Yeah, I think. Ultimately, they hold themselves to their own standard, and the president is elected by the club, and that president basically is given one remit, which is win, by almost any means necessary, and it's how they've gotten themselves into a terrible position. Um, but again, I just look at, you know, their really only big sale was Philippe Coutinho, who was only, it's only a little more than 17 million pounds, and then you get him off the salary uh, bill. You have Clemen Longley off the salary bill as well, and you bring on Andreas Christensen, so that's probably an upgrade in that position. We'll see what Christensen looks like outside of the Chelsea setup and without the aid of Thiago Silva at the back. Frank Kessie is an addition in midfield, which you imagine will help things. I feel like their, their team's pretty good. Um, under the tutelage of Xavi, it'll be pretty good. I just don't think it's good enough to where they're challenging for major honors. Maybe they can win a domestic cup but I don't think they're better than Real Madrid. I don't think they're better than all the teams competing for the Champions League. Another question here I have about Matthias De Ligt is, do we know why he wanted to leave Juventus? No. <laughs> well, I mean, at least I, 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 I did a quick Google search before we started, but I haven't seen, other than just sometimes players want moves or uh, maybe it wasn't working for him at Juve and Juve are still going through a growth process or maybe they want the money instead of De Ligt and they can use that money to go rebuild their team. But this is a transfer where you look at the end of it and go, why? Why is either team doing this? I mean, Bayern has spent a lot of money on center backs um, in recent windows. They have Dio Upamecano, um, and they went and spent another $75 million on other center backs. So I, I'm really interested in the whole thing, but why is Delict leaving Juve? Other than the fact that they haven't been an incredibly strong team for a few years now, I, I don't know what the answer to that question is. The thing about Matthias Delict, though, is... He's one of these guys when he's such a big figure when he comes into a team, despite being such a young guy, he was captain of Ajax at a tremendously young age when he was a teenager, is you almost have to consider him as the captain of your team, even if you're Bayern Munich when you bring him in. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious to see, and he'll be coming to the US as well with Bayern, how that works and how soon it might be before uh, that type of captaincy consideration takes place. But um, he seems like a good fit for Bayern, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and so we will see how that shapes up. Chris, thanks as always. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Julie Foudy. 
Our guest now is the gold standard. Julie Foudy of ESPN <laughs> joins us now. She was episode number two of our podcast. Two wow. years later, she is now episode number 242. Wow. You can hear her on her podcast, Laughter Permitted, and watch her on ESPN's wall-to-wall coverage of Euro 2022. 242 <laughs> episodes, Grant? Yeah, it's great to see you. How how are you? Thanks for coming Look on the show. Look at you, 242 <laughs> in. That's impressive. It's kind of incredible, but when you do two episodes a week and you do I it every know. week, they pile so up. So good, eventually. too. They're really good. You're doing great stuff. Thank you. It's great to see you. Um, and we're recording this on Saturday, coming out Monday morning. The Euros are in full swing. You are all over it. What has stood out to you so far about this tournament? Gosh, how many days do we have? Let's <laughs> see. I I have, well, most recent, like Norway's collapse. <laughs> when was the last time we've we've seen a Norway team without any bite, any, any mentality? It's like, wow, what happened to the Norway of old? Used to walk away completely battered and bruised after those games and that was a different team. Um, so they, their disappointment on a positive note, Germany, their resurgence with this group, I thought they've looked excellent. They haven't won a euros by their standards in forever. Cause it's been almost a decade and they have won more than anyone else. Of course, eight, six in a row leading into 2000, well up to 2013. So, um, I thought Germany's looked excellent. I think, um, England and France are your other two teams, I think, that are the favorites. So England, of course, seems to be handling the pressure well. We'll see how when they go into the quarterfinal phase, what that will mean. But France, with all the discussion about, you know, them being a hot mess and so much controversy surrounding their team with their coach, Diacre, and uh, some of her antics, it, they seem to be playing well. And looking good. It's interesting, right? I mean, like, I'm just really enjoying having the opportunity to watch this entire tournament on ESPN platforms because we really haven't had that opportunity before. And how, how important is it to you that, that ESPN has made the decision to, to cover this tournament this way? Huge. Huge. Because... Obviously, we've seen the energy and effort we put in behind the men's tournament and particularly men's Euros. Obviously, ESPN doesn't have World Cup anymore. But um, yeah, it was a big thing that we brought up. And I said, look, we can't be doing all of this for the men and nothing for the women that, you know, we need to show our commitment to the women's side of this. And so uh, Amy Rosenfeld, before she left ESPN, was great in pushing it and pushing it and pushing it as well. Um, and you know, then all of a sudden it was like, okay, Julie, guess what? Your wish came true. <laughs> Not only are we covering it, we're covering, you know, 25 of the 31 games and you're spending all month here. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, and it's, it's necessary. I mean, it's, it's historical what's happening. The numbers that are coming, the, uh, the attendance, you know, the chance for England to finally, possibly win their first major tournament. And so I'm super proud of ESPN and and the effort they've put into this. And how much fun are you having with people like Emma Hayes and Steffi Jones <laughs> and that whole group? It's what we say every day as we sit by our fire pit and do our nightcap. Uh, I mean, literally every night we're together and it's like perfect timing with the games because you're, you know, you're off air by like 530 and um, and you have all evening. So it's so much fun. Emma and Steffi are characters. Emma's, you know, uh, constantly entertaining around the fire pit. And so it's, and I get to see all these old teammates of mine that, you know, I played with. So it's been really fun. And it's just a good group of humans and who care de deeply about the sport. And so it's been a ton of fun. That's really what we should be filming. <laughs> there should be like a, yeah, on ESPN 8, like a constant right. show. <laughs> Live cam of the fire, fireside chats. Um, how do you feel about this idea that in that Europe maybe hasn't just closed the gap with the U.S.? Because we're going to mm. get to the U.S. in a second um, in, in what's going on there. But like that maybe Europe has passed the U.S., like mm -hmm. in the, in this whole discussion here, what's going on in Europe, in your opinion, and where are they in in relation to the U.S. And are we is that a little unfair, 
considering that the U.S. isn't in the exact same position right now as they prepare for the World Cup? Yeah, I mean, they're rebuilding and they realize they have some time. They still have a year for that. Um, but I, I will say that the football you're seeing from Europe on the women's side and the numbers and the attention and um, and not just in England, I mean, we're seeing it all over the place in Europe is fantastic to see. And I think the reason you see it is because these large clubs, these huge global brands are driving it. And for many years, I thought, you know, the driving force of women's football would be FIFA mandating to these federations, but that's not it at all, right? What we're seeing is the biggest growth factor is because these big clubs are finally investing in a women's game. And so there's better games, there's better training, there's clearly more professionalism across the board around Europe. And and that has wonderful consequences because you have players who are training against the best every day, who are playing against the best, Um, there's more parity within the leagues as well. So it's absolutely the money from a lot of these big clubs, I think, that has driven this, um, this, this really important step forward for Europe in, in terms of women's soccer. And where does the U.S. fit into that? Because it's not like the NWSL is standing still, and most of the U.S. players still play in the NWSL, Mm-hmm. Is this rising tide lifts all boats? Is it is it more of a positive than a concern for you when it comes to sort of where the U.S. fits in? Oh, it'll always be a positive when you see more pockets around the world, you know, uh, embracing and celebrating women playing. So that is absolutely a positive. I, I think it's it's tough for NWSL because there's just so much competition in the marketplace. I mean, that was never a case with obviously the old iterations of women's pro leagues in the United States. Maybe you could argue in the second league WPS there, there was uh, the start of Europe coming in and, um, and stealing our market uh, of players. But now, you know, you've got uh, a player who, I mean, um, imagine like a, a Grace Gayoro from, from France who plays at PSG, you know, she's got so many clubs coming after her. Look at um, the young Haitian player. Uh, her last name escapes me, but De Monet. Uh, De Monet, thank you. Um, and, you know, 50 clubs is what I heard them say on the telecast after her. So it's clearly something that um, has become more challenging to sign the best players before everyone wanted to come to the United States. Uh, and now you're seeing with all these. Um, enormous clubs and the facilities they have and the backing they're getting for the women's side. And I still think we're just scratching the surface of that. I think that's going to just keep growing exponentially. Um, you know, it, it makes sense. They want to stay in Europe or they want to go to Barcelona or they want to play for Lyon. So it's, it's going to be a challenge for sure for NWSL going forward. So we've got the CONCACAF Women's Championship going on. It's USA Canada in the final on Monday. What's your sense of the U.S. performance in this tournament? Eh, that's how I feel about it right now. Eh, that's what I always say. <laughs> it's like, ah, it's a little bit, uh, there's just, I don't know. I feel like there's there's so much creativity in that young group that we just haven't been able as a country to put together yet, the United States. So um, I think there's a tremendous upside to that younger group for sure. I mean, we, we've seen it in um, Sophia Smith and Mal Pugh and Ashley Sanchez. And you go down the list of all the potential with that younger group, but it's not there yet. That, that, that movement isn't there, that continuity isn't there, that um, even just, you know, the speed of play and the pace and the pressing. And I know it's been hot. So it's easy for me to say in an air conditioned room that they're not pressing enough, but I know it's been, it's been really hot. Uh, But it just, it just feels like there's a lot of tinkering still and we're not yet getting the best out of those players. But having said that, I do think it was a necessary page to turn in terms of going younger and that, as we know, is never easy as you introduce a lot of young 20-something-year-olds into to the mix. Um, but I do think this Canada game will be a great test for them in, in terms of where they're at. So I'm excited to see that. Yeah, me too. I mean, when the World Cup comes around in a year, 
What do you think the U.S. roster will look like? And I, I think of some names that aren't involved right now for reasons of injury or pregnancy. Crystal Dunn, Sam Mewis, Julie Ertz, Kristen Press, Tobin Heath. How many of those players do you think will be on that squad? It's a great question. I think more of that middle group versus the veteran group. So the veteran group I see that's a little bit older is Kristen Press, Tobin Heath. I think they're on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously with Press's injury, that that's, uh, you know, I think that's probably the window for 2023 is gone, um, unfortunately for her. For uh, a player like Julie Ertz, that's the middle group I have always considered. So late 20s, mid to late, well, actually probably more like late 20s now. So Julie Ertz, uh, Sam Mewis, Crystal Dunn, I think those three are very much in the picture. Um, because if they can show that they can get back, I mean, every time Vlatko talks about the team, he talks about the importance of those three to this past team and how he's eager to see, you know, where they're at. But I think Sam Mewis's knee injury is very concerning. Um, it's just not getting better. And so I worry about that more than I worry about Ertz and Dunn getting back into shape. And of course, if Ertz is going to play, um, her club, you know, soccer at the great angel city, we shall see. Uh, I don't know, you know, what that means for her if she doesn't, because Vlatko has said, you know, repeatedly, he wants them to perform first at the club level. So maybe he makes an exception for her, but I don't see that. I think she's going to have to play at the club level. You mentioned angel city. You're an owner of this team. Like, are how much are you enjoying this process of sort of just going to Angel City games, seeing what that club is doing, all the success they're having. I I will tell you, Grant, because when we go to games, typically we as journalists, we're working, right? I'm either calling a game, I'm covering a game, I'm reporting on a game. And I go to Angel City games. I have a big old drink before the game starts. (laughs) I don't have to worry about any work. It's literally I'm hanging out with all my teammates, right? We're all owners. There's 14 of us that are owners. It's a huge reunion every time there's a home game. It's an incredible ownership group. That's a ton of fun. And it's just a blast. It is even my kids. My kids are like begging to go to games with me. And my kids are teenagers. No one, no teenagers beg to hang with their parents. It's the only time I can get them to hang with me. So we we literally like card up like seven people every game, the kids and their friends, and um, it's just so much fun. So that has been a joy. Uh, that um, really, I feel lucky to be a part of because it's just such a neat group of w- awesome women and awesome owners, and so, and really they they just think differently, which is so nice, and I think so needed. No, it's really cool to see. It is fun for me sometimes to actually go as a fan to a game and not be working and oh wait you can drink a beer and 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 actually this is fun (laughs) yeah imagine i don't have to completely lock in the whole time i mean our section starting the wave every time it's so fun and it literally is like mia's behind me abby's to my left shannon box has seats right here like we all sit together as well uh tisha's to my right Venturini. So it's, it's really fun. That's really cool. Um, I, I want to ask you also about the Julie Foudy Sports Leadership Academy, because I know uh, you had this happen again fairly recently, and it seems really mm-hmm. cool. Can you explain what it is? Yeah, we've been doing that ever since I retired from playing. I always just felt like, gosh, why aren't we teaching young women also about not just how to kick a soccer ball or we do basketball and lacrosse as well you know, play their sport, but really the the gift of sports is we're creating better human beings who go back into their communities and give back and are positive leaders in their community. And for a lot of young women, even, you know, the best athletes, they lack that confidence to raise their hand or get out of their comfort zone or take that step forward or take a risk. And so it's a lot of really fun, high energy um, leadership training and sports, of course, together, we, we merged the two and, um, and I, and I can't believe I've been doing it for, this was our 17th summer, I think of doing it 
Yeah. And we had um, the last few years, we've had this really cool addition of the state department. They have this great sports diplomacy program, which you've probably heard about because a lot of athletes travel abroad and we do this exchange with athletes, us sending athletes to them. Like Brandy and I did it, you know, a week in Brazil once and, um, and they go all over the world, but they bring athletes to us. So they brought 65 girls from 13 different countries. So yeah, Bolivia, Liberia, um, Brazil, Georgia. I mean, you just go down the list. It's, it's crazy. Bangladesh. It's, it's really cool. Nice. Speaking of leadership, I wanted to ask you about U.S. soccer president Cindy Parlow Cohn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the day, I would have guessed that if any 99er would someday become U.S. soccer president, it would be you. <laughs> no one wishes that. <laughs> <laughs> But I recently wrote a column saying that Cindy has become a historical figure in U.S. soccer with the equal pay agreement, especially. What do you think of how she's done in that position? I think she's absolutely crushing it. I'm so incredibly proud of her because this was not a position she sought out either. You know, this vice president position. And then when Carlos gets uh, let go, fired, um, resigned, however you want to say it, basically let go you know, she has to step in and fill this leadership void. And she has been tremendous. And it's not surprising, honestly. I mean, I know she wasn't, you know, the one in the middle of the huddle pounding her chest, you know, roaring like a lion to get the team going. She was quieter. But the thing you always knew about Cindy is she's so steady. Her integrity and her moral compass in terms of just good intentions and doing the right things is is as good as I've seen in any human. And then on top of that, she's willing to make tough decisions and quickly. And that's hard for a lot of people stepping into that leadership position and running a federation, you know, as, as large and successful as this one. And yet, you know, she knows what's needed and is willing to make the hard decisions and act quickly. And I think uh, when you combine all those traits you know, it makes for uh, great leadership. And she's trying to, you know, rebuild a culture within the Federation that obviously is more inclusive and uh, supports the women and all these things that have been a challenge in the past that she gets because she's lived it. So the importance of having a player as well in that role can't be understated. And I wanted to ask you about the equal pay agreement because we did a, a podcast series uh, I guess it was 2019 where I interviewed you extensively, but all a bunch of other players uh, from the uh, the 91 uh, World Cup winning team and the U.S. teams from the 90s. And you spoke in great, compelling detail about you know how difficult it was with U.S. soccer in those days, mm-hmm. basically ever since. And, and now this equal pay deal has finally happened. How do you feel about that? When you look back at your entire experience with all of this? Well, it's not surprising that it happens under Cindy being, as I just said, a past player who gets it and also being a woman who understands the battle and the fight that's gone and raged on for a long time and the frustration around that. I think that helps because the players knew that she understood it. And uh, could trust that, you know, her intentions were there in, in the right place. So I think that helps get it over that finish line, which we know has, you know, been a long time coming. So, you know, we, the 99ers group and the old bag thread that we have, you know, we're doing a lot of a celebration, you know, frustration. It took so long, but celebration that we're finally there. And and really there, like you have a lot of federations who say, oh, we're offering equal pay. And I'm like, nah, you know, equal percentage of a bonus that's 400 million and equal percentage of a bonus that then is 40 million for the women is not equal pay. That's very different. And they're all saying that. I'm like, no, Cindy knew, you know, the, the big elephant in the room was the difference in prize money from FIFA and literally said to both teams, I am not signing a contract until this gets equalized. We will not sign a contract until the FIFA money gets sorted. So you guys sit down and figure it out. Um, And they did. And I give a ton of credit to the men as well, because I know that wasn't an easy decision as well. And, you know, and I wish in the end, 
um, now that we really are one team, one nation, finally, for the first time, that now we can tackle this together, the men and the women, and go after FIFA and say that gap needs to, 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 um, to change in terms of the pay. And obviously, you need to support the women more. And, and now we have the men. When they do well, the women are celebrating. And when the women do well, the men are celebrating because everyone's reaping that reward and you're getting a piece of it. And that's really something we should have done long ago. We should have all been on the same page uh, in terms of sharing the pot. We're wrapping up here with Julie Fowdy. I do want to ask you about FIFA a little bit, though, because there's still discussion. I had Alex Morgan uh, for an interview just last week, and she's on this committee that Jill Ellis runs for FIFA that is still actively considering whether the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, should be every two years. And I'm kind of torn on that one. I didn't want to see the Men's World Cup go to once every two years, but I'm not ready to rule out the idea of a, of a Women's World Cup every two years if you, like, make that change. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that possibility. I don't love it. I think the calendar is already busy enough. Um, I think it also diminishes the importance of the World Cup being on that quadrennial cycle. Um, so I think it would be a challenge. I mean, how do you fit that in with the euros as well? And with, you know, the club, uh, champions league competitions we're seeing, I'd rather see a club world cup than every other year. Um, and, and maybe, you know, the, the challenge of course, for FIFA is for those countries that don't do a lot of programming is trying to create more programming. And I, and I still think you can get there. And these countries are all seeing that there's all this money being left on the table, honestly. And we know how money moves things that, hey, there's uh, this untapped potential that you can see the countries who are getting it or tapping into it. I mean, look at the transformation of Spain. I mean, would not have predicted that even five years ago and how quickly that country is supporting it. We obviously see the growth and support there and how well they're doing. Um, but I, I just think uh, it's asking too much of the players. And I don't think in the end you get the, the benefits of more competition. I just think it dilutes actually the World Cup for women. And I think we need the World Cup for, for women to be this global event that um, really is transformational in nature. And Obviously, the World Cup is a year away. ESPN doesn't have the tournament. Will you be there? How, how will that work for you? I will be there, I'm sure, in some capacity. I don't know yet how or what I'll be doing, but yeah, I'll be there for sure. I mean, I wouldn't miss that, especially, you know, I've, I'm trying to sell that I should be in New Zealand and Australia prepping all of this for a good six months <laughs> with the whole family. So <laughs> I'm going to need all of 2023 to... <laughs> investigate the stadiums and <laughs> yeah that's gonna be a good one that's gonna be a ton of fun julie fowdy is covering the euros right now with espn julie thanks so much for coming on the show thanks grant thanks for listening to football with grant wall i'd like to thank julie fowdy as well as producer and pundit chris whittingham you can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com the best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription See you next time.